My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning. This is Lane Jones, pastor of Calkins Baptist Church, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. The last several months, we've been studying the most detailed book of the Bible about what Christians believe and why, the book of Romans. And for the last several weeks, we've been discussing what it's like to live a life as a living sacrifice for God. It's what's called the practical section of the book of Romans, where we're trying to apply the different doctrines that Paul has been laying out for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So how does God expect us to live when we're totally dedicated to him? Well, some of the things it involves is using our spiritual gifts that he gives us to be a blessing to others around us, especially the church, also being submissive to governing authorities and also having a loving attitude toward your Christian brother and sister. And we're going to be talking about that a lot more in this particular message as well. But you know, we we all kind of have a common problem. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I cannot fulfill our calling to love our Christian brother and sister as Jesus has called us to do because he tells us to love them like he loves us. And that kind of deep loyalty and commitment, which is what he's talking about, doesn't just come from personality or liking people on the surface. It's got to come from the Lord helping us, enabling us to live a truly loving life toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're going to really look at two major thoughts in this passage The first one is dealing with the idea of seeking the benefit of your Christian brother. That's the first six verses of the chapter. And then we're going to end at verse 13. So we're going to go from verse 7 to 13 and talk about a second major thought, and that is welcoming people to the church family from different backgrounds. And so before we get started, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to proclaim it. And we ask that this would be a blessing to people. Lord, only you know who are going to be listening at this time. And so we ask for your special blessing upon each person that does take the time to listen. And may you work in each of their hearts, Lord, and and my heart as well, as I proclaim this. And uh, Lord, give me wisdom that I might be able to be clear and understandable and that uh, we'd grab some important truths. And Lord, for any who may be listening and they don't know Christ as Savior yet, may you work in their lives to come to know him to whom to know is life eternal. And we pray for your blessings upon those that do, that they might grow in their faith and in their obedience. And and so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, God calls his true children to unity in obedience to Christ. And so we're going to really see that in these first 13 verses of chapter 15. And then notice again, first of all, this idea of seeking the benefit of your Christian brother more even than your own benefit. So I'm, I'm going to start Romans 15 and verse 1. It says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now that idea of scruples carries the idea of infirmities. So people don't come, you know, clean and without any scratches on them typically when they come to church, especially if they're coming as adults. Uh, the reality is we've all been through the wounds of sin. And so Paul is addressing the spiritually strong believers in this verse. So he says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. So to be spiritually strong involves far more than having Bible knowledge. It also involves having a godly life. And you say, what about these scruples? What are you talking about? Well, it's the idea is that sometimes because of our sinful past, we may be offended by things that wouldn't bother somebody else. For instance, I'll just give you an example, and it did not happen in my church. I remember a pastor bringing it up. 
And he was talking about in one particular night, they were having a musical number that someone was going to be singing. And so for whatever reason, the person who was going to sing the song stood over by the piano and sang from there while the pianist played. And there was a person in the congregation that came up to the pastor afterward and said, that really bothered me. And pastor was kind of taken back by that, but he said, well, what was the problem? And the guy said, well, I come out of a background where I was in the bars all the time. And he said, that's how they sang in the bars. And he said, it kind of reminded me of that. And so it bothered me. Now, it's, it's just interesting, isn't it, that I wouldn't have thought of that necessarily. But that guy, it bothered me. That's kind of the thing that he's talking about. Those of you who are spiritually strong, you may have some believers and they, it may be nothing wrong with what they think is wrong, but because of their background, because of something that's gone on before, reminded them of something. And so we need to be sensitive. We all have our weaknesses, by the way, don't we? I don't care who we are. We all have them. Then do you help your brother or sister in Christ? Or do you say, well, grow up? Are you willing to give up a little bit, maybe of something that isn't wrong, at least to be a blessing to them so that you're not hurting them? So infirmities is that idea of weaknesses. And I think with every personality, weakness also accompanies a strength. So let me give you some examples. Uh, How about the person that's very organized? Don't we all love them? And they're very, very helpful. But, you know, sometimes they can be picky. We now label it, don't we? We call it OCD. Now, there's also the easygoing person, but they tend to sometimes be sloppy. You know what I mean? So they're not all upset if, if you left some crumbs on the floor or something at church. But the reality is that's because they're they're probably, they realize I might do that myself. Now, there also are many times new Christians, and they have fervency, and it is such a blessing. But sometimes they can get self-righteous when they look at other people, and they can't understand why they're not as fired up as they are. And so, again, a strength and a weakness. How about people who are faithful? Boy, they're like clockwork. They're going to be in church. They're going to spend time in God's Word on a daily basis. But sometimes those people can be negative about those who aren't as faithful as they are. So you'll hear them talking about, oh, we got a bunch of unfaithful. Well, the truth is, yeah, that's great that you're faithful, but we don't want to just be negative as well. There are other people that are kind. You know, if you need a pug or you just need somebody who's going to understand you, you got somebody and you know who they are, they're just a, they're just kind. But sometimes those people can also be soft on sin and they won't speak up when they need to about something that's wrong. And then there's other people that'll speak up against sin, but sometimes they can kind of go over the top and be ungracious. So how do you handle your brother or sister's weaknesses? Do you focus on what you appreciate about your fellow believer, or do you focus on what you don't like? And if we're not careful, without even realizing, we begin to focus on the things we don't like, and that can really be a problem and it's not the way God wants us to think. And let me just say this. This goes beyond your church family. I want you to also think about your brothers or your sisters, your siblings, people that you've grown up with maybe in your home right now. Do you appreciate their strengths or do you focus on their weaknesses? How about your parents? Or maybe you're a parent and you're raising a child and all you can seem to see is the weakness. Are you also encouraging them about their strengths? Are you calling them to develop their strengths, not just trying to fix their weaknesses. Same thing with your spouse. We can be critical. We're trying to fix our spouse all the time. And the reality, many times they need more encouragement than they do our fixing. 
And same thing with friends around us. We can push people away just because we simply are focused on the wrong thing. So often those person's weaknesses, they're going to come with strengths too. So which one are you going to focus on and how can you help them to grow in their area of weakness without being overbearing? So we see this command was addressed to stronger Christians who Paul's calling them to think about that a less strong believer and try to encourage them and don't beat them up when they have maybe scruples. Again, something simple as, well, I didn't like that person standing by the piano. That just reminded me of the bar. I, you know, I've, I've walked away from that. Well, that's great. And so maybe, maybe we will, at least while you're around, maybe we won't do that because if that offends you. But the idea is we've got to love these people where they're at and not merely just criticize them when they, when they are showing uh, um, something in their life that maybe is not is not what we would see as wrong. Notice something else, and that is in verse 2, it says, let, us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So the focus then of this command is on blessing other people. And so notice we're seeking basically two things. We're seeking our Christian brother or sister's good. Let's say you're dealing with a person who's battling bitterness, and maybe their marriage broke up several years back, and you could keep preaching to that friend of yours about his need to forgive his ex-wife, or you could take another tactic. You could you could encourage your friend to pray for his ex-wife, that God will work in her heart. I mean, he doesn't want her, I hope, he doesn't want her to be lost forever, and so if she doesn't know Christ yet, I, maybe that'd be a great thing to begin to do, begin to pray that she'll come to know the Lord. And you, what you find, by the way, is that as people begin to pray for someone that they're angry with, if they're truly going to pray from their heart, God will soften their heart toward that person. And that's a great way to start, by the way. Now, you could also encourage him to confess whatever sins he committed when the marriage was deteriorating. Maybe there's some things, well, you know, yeah, your, your ex-wife may have done some terrible things, but are there some things you need to get right with God about? And maybe if the Lord gave the opportunity to get right with your ex-wife about it, I mean, are there things like that? I remember a number of years ago, there was a lady that was coming to our church, and boy, what a tough situation. Her daughter-in-law, now she, again, whether or not this was legit, she blamed her daughter-in-law for her son's suicide. And that's a hard one. How do we know that? I'm sure the daughter-in-law felt terrible as well. But anyway, her son committed suicide, and, and she blamed the daughter-in-law. And so when she would come out different times, she would mention on a Sunday morning, I'm struggling with bitterness and I don't know what to do about it. And so I just encourage her, hey, start here. Start just praying for her. Start asking God to work in her life. And another thing that was going on as a result of her bitterness, she was then alienated and not able to see her granddaughters, which really bothered her. And so it was interesting as she did try to just obey the Lord and talked to God and asked him for his mercy upon her daughter-in-law and work in her life, God began to open some doors. She was actually able to reunite with her granddaughters. I think she was even able to uh, speak with and and get along with her daughter-in-law. So, you know, God has a way of helping us, and we've got to be encouraging people and seeking God's help on how to help people who are bruised and beaten because of some circumstances that they've been through. And so you could show your friend who's battling bitterness God's goodness and point it out in his own life. 
And I think that's a really good tactic, too. It's, well, you know, I, I know this is, because I'll tell you this, I think people battle bitterness because they can't see, by faith, the goodness of God behind all of our circumstances. And let me just say this, there will be many times when a tragedy will befall a God's child or a major injustice, and you just can't see anything, anything good coming out of it. But I will tell you that God still will work good out of evil. The greatest evil that has ever been done in all of human history, ever could be done, was the crucifixion of Christ. And God used that for the greatest good, to pay for the sins of the world so that you and I could be made children of God. So don't think that God can't take a tremendous injustice in your life or a tremendous tragedy. I'm not saying that you're going to walk through life at some point without that scar from the tragedy. We will go through life with scars that we'll have from, and sometimes they're not things that we did ourselves. They're just things that happened to us along the path of life that God allowed. But I will tell you, he will turn those things into good in his perfect timing. You're going to have to trust him on that. So here's a, again, this guy's struggling with bitterness against his ex-wife. He sees nothing good of the breakup of their marriage. And it is a horrific thing. It's an awful thing. So you do need to show them, look, God's brought me into your life to try to at least encourage you along the way. Uh, You don't need to come up with some idea, by the way, that probably doesn't make much sense as to why God would allow a great injustice or tragedy, but you can show God's loyal love toward your friend and and be a living representative of God's goodness to him. And uh, there are bruised and broken people in our in our churches, and they, by the way, they should be unmistakably welcomed. Our churches are richer for them. The crowd that comes to follow Christ does not have a test that you have to pass for beauty or wisdom or cleanliness or smell test to be welcomed in the house of God. I got a real blessing last just this last week. We had a men's prayer breakfast, and there's a young fella. Well, he's not young any longer. He's in his, probably in his 50s, but he's a little bit mentally handicapped. And he came for the first time to our prayer breakfast. I've known him for a number of years, but he was able to come. And it was just mentioned to me by the guy that brought him that he was up before he got there reading his Bible, 6.30 in the morning. And he said he does that every morning, spends time with God. Now, here's a guy that that, again, he's not got all of the abilities mentally that other people have. But let me tell you this, that blessed and challenged me. And what a great challenge from this guy who, again, he's not got the mental capabilities that many of you folks would have, but here he's using what he's got for God's glory. Wow, I'll tell you what, that just blessed my heart. And so we need to be get firmly fixed in our minds that There's no worthiness test of people that come through the door. If they're willing to sincerely listen to the Word of God and listen to God, then we want them there. Uh, That means that there will be Christians whose weaknesses can be hard to understand and hard to solve, but they must be loved where they are and encouraged, by the way, not to stay where they're at. We're not encouraging people to wallow in self-pity or wallow in the past, we want them to grow to become more like Christ, just like the rest of us. So we are speaking of the, the, the weak brother, and we're seeking then his good, and we're seeking something else. It says again, 
We then who are strong ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now, that word edification is this, is the second thing we're, we're trying to um, seek with our Christian brother, this good. And then the word edification means strengthening or building up. Now, some of you have tried out for one of your school sports teams, and I can imagine that some of you have gotten cut as well. Now, God uh, does not cut people who truly want to seek him. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, God made this promise to his people. He said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, I've um, uh, had the privilege of coaching basketball for small Christian schools and and even now some homeschool kids. I've never had to cut anybody. It's just because the numbers never were necessary that I would. Uh, I've had a few people cut themselves because they didn't want to practice hard or could not keep their grades up maybe, but I've never had to cut anybody. But now any person who has coached a sport knows that the kids you work with will have a variety of skill and ability levels. I think the key to coaching is not to make everyone get to the same level. And that's kind of how some people look at the economy. You know, we've got to make everybody on the same level. Well, the only way to do that is you'd have to bring certain people down economically. That's not really a good idea either. Um, and I'll just tell you, the sports realm is makes it's absolutely ridiculous. You you don't want the kid who's got real talent to have to play at a lower level than he's able. That that is no good for him. So what you do is your goal isn't to make everybody have the same ability. One of my goals is to help each player I possibly can to develop and become a better player than he was, and to help him find what he can do to make the team successful. Also, if you work with kids, you realize they don't all improve at the same rate. So one kid may take a year to learn what another might grasp in a few minutes. So a whole host of factors go into a player's development, his aptitude, his athleticism. A parental support can have a big factor in that whole thing. Um, Let's see, there could be interest in the sport, if he really likes it or not, Uh, his age. Work ethic is a huge one as well. These are some of the ones that come easily into my mind. I, I, I think the work of God is very similar, by the way, to coaching. The the goal is to help each believer God places in your life or in mine, often in, in my church, uh, to be closer to God and growing more in Christ as re- one of the results of knowing me. So you want to be a blessing. You want to help them to grow. You want to strengthen them. You want your friendship to mean something, not just to be a time where you joke around and don't get really anything done. So, I, by the way, I, I'm not at all against having a good time and, and joking with people. That's not a problem. But I do hope that we, we help people to move the right direction in life uh, as well. So what's the example that we can look at to help us to get how do we live this life of, of living for other people? Well, our example for each believer is Jesus Christ. It comes to the next verse. It says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Now, uh, that's an interesting quote. Uh, it's, it actually is an Old Testament quote that, that the disciples remembered, but it's, it's reiterated in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, chapter 2 and verses 13 to 17. What it's about is when Jesus went into the temple and he was noticing all of the the commercialism that was going on, buying and selling and all kinds of things uh, along this nature. And 
and even honestly dishonest business going on there. And so he took a, a you remember he, he made himself a whip and he drove out the money changers. They were one of the big ripoff uh, groups there, as well as uh, he, he drove out the people that were selling the sacrificial animals. And, and he said, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now here's the, and then in that context, because people got angry with him for doing that, he messed up a lot of what they would think of was good business. So because Jesus steps in and stands up for God's glory and God's purity in his house, all right, because he did that, and he said, remember, you made it a den of thieves. Because he did that, he made some enemies. Now, Jesus wasn't, I don't think, getting up that morning excitedly thinking, oh, wonderful, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to make some, some new enemies, I'm going to drive some people out of the temple, I'm going to have a good old time with this. No, I don't think that was it at all. And that's why it says the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus stood up for the holy and just standards of his Father in heaven, for the glory of God to be seen again in God's house. And those people who were sinning against God and were in rebellion against him, and many of them, people, by the way, were religious leaders, they transferred their hatred for God in heaven to God the Son, who was right in front of them. That's why he says the reproaches of those who reproach you, speaking of God the Father, fell on me, speaking of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you that if you and I stand up consistently for what's right, when God leads us to do that, we'll make our enemies as well. Not meaning that we're trying to make them any more than Christ was. But if a person is an enemy of God, many times they become an enemy of God's children. And that's what happened when Jesus cleansed the temple. And so it was a very selfless act is the point. Jesus wasn't doing that in order to give himself a bigger, a bigger name or in order to make friends and influence people. He was trying to make a, 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 a very important point, and that is that God's house should be free from robbery and from trickery and, and sin. And it's still true today, by the way. Now, the source of our information on how to live this way is God's Word itself. So let me read you verse 4 now. He says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So the Scriptures give us much reason to endure. That word patience is the idea of endurance. And I just want you to think, if, we, if, if you've read your Scriptures very much, you can realize examples in there of people enduring despite many times years of not seeing God answer their prayer. I think of Abraham and Sarah. They were praying for a child for years, decades. And it wasn't until Abraham was 100 years old that God blessed him and Sarah with their one and only son, Isaac. And they could have given up and just said, well, God's not going to answer. It seemed at one point Sarah sort of did that as she gave Hagar her her um, maid to Abraham to try to have a, a son in that way. But the reality is this, they hung on after God said, nope, I'm going to give a son to Sarah. They hung on and God blessed Sarah's faith and Abraham's faith and gave them a child. They endured. Think about Joseph and how much difficulty he went through for years, at least I would say 13 years of being either in slavery or in jail. And how was God's 
vision that he gave him early in life about him being exalted above his brothers, how is that ever going to work? And yet he stayed with, he didn't give up on God. He didn't say, you know what, God has, has allowed so many bad things to happen to me. I think I'm going to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. I think I owe myself a little pleasure. Didn't do that, did he? He runs from her, gets thrown in jail because of it, and yet still is going on, still enduring, still doing what's right. That's a great example of how we can then take these examples from the past and say, look, I can endure. I think of Ruth, uh, this lady who was a Moabite, married a Jewish man. And again, that was forbidden in that day. So she may not have known better, or, or if she did, she fell in love with this guy. And, and so they married, and, and then um, God took that man home. He, he died early, and she's She's a widow. What does she do? She go back to her pagan society, and, and that's what actually her mother-in-law, Naomi, encouraged her to do, and Ruth couldn't do it. She, she had made a commitment to God. She can't do that. And so she goes back to Israel with a very real possibility she'll never marry again. She endured. And, of course, God blessed her in wonderful ways. We also not only find endurance from the Scriptures, we find comfort. I think of the book of Job that has brought comfort to many people in times of affliction. Those of you that are going through times of affliction right now, I'd encourage you. Job is an interesting book. I think a, a really good book is the book of Psalms. Uh, those are prayers. They're Yes, they were put to music, many of them, but uh, they're prayers. And these people are talking to God very honestly, very openly. They're not, they're not you know, using a lot of a flowery language that, you know, um, and, and try to act more spiritual than they are. Sometimes they're saying to God, where are you? And uh, wake up, Lord. I, I don't see you around. So I just think they're a great comfort to those of you that are suffering. And so we find comfort from the scriptures, but we also find hope. That word hope, again, is a confident expectation that God is going to keep his word. And so we see God keeping his word to people in the Old Testament. We see it repeatedly, and we can we can grab that. And even examples in the New Testament as well, by the way, we can grab that and say, you know what? I can trust God today. That's exactly what the scriptures are meant to do. So he tells us then that the example is Christ, the source of our information where we learn about Christ and we learn uh, lessons to help us is the, is the, the God's holy word. And so now let's talk about the blessings we get when we achieve this unity, when we uh, are living with others with this loving spirit. So in verse 5 and 6, he says, Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. So there are really two blessings that come out of uh, Christians living together in unity. The first one is a unified mind. Now, this does not mean that we're all zombies who do not have a mind of our own, and we, we, so we kind of spit out the same things. Not at all. We vary in personality. In many ways, we, we vary in how we look at life because we've come at life from totally different backgrounds. But we can be united about worshiping a common Savior and desiring a common goal. And that is the glory of God through our lives. And so as, it'd be similar to the military. Those of you that are familiar with the military, 
you're coming from all over the country, people from all different racial, ethnic backgrounds, and different cultures that they come out of, what unifies them? Well, it is the mission. And the idea that we're all going to be loyal to the United States, we're going to support the mission specifically that we're on, that's what brings guys together. And uh, notice also there's a common mind, there's a common message. He says that we would with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this common message, again, the message is not identical, It is uh, nor is it delivered in a uniform way. If you listen to different preachers on the radio, I'm sure you've noticed that they have. we all have different styles. That's fine. But the deity of Christ, the fact that Christ is God, the fact that his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins are essential for salvation, these are common beliefs. Also, we would draw the line of, between truth uh, and false uh, preachers and the, uh, by standing on the authority of God's word, that God's word is absolutely true and we need to live up to it and follow it. And that salvation is by repentance and faith. These are common parts of the message. And this is with one mouth glorifying God. Yes, we look different. Yes, we are going to talk differently. But the, the common message is what unifies us. Now we come to the second major command in this passage, and that is the command to welcome both Jew and Gentile into the church family. So it's from chapter 15, verse 7, down to verse 13. So notice what he says in verse 7, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So that word received is an interesting word. It, it was used in the New Testament to mean different things depending on the context. And now I'm relying on the uh, analytical Greek lexicon by Timothy and Barbara Freiburg here. They were some great scholars. And so let me just kind of give you some of the things that I gleaned from reading them. It, this same word received uh, in the Greek was used to, to, uh, by the apostle Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 22, when Peter took Jesus aside to talk with him privately. Now, though that idea of received then is that idea kind of like saying, hey, could you come over here and talk to me, taking someone aside to talk privately with them. But now let's apply that in a church setting. So let's say that you're visiting a church and, and you're clearly an outsider, but you have someone that actually goes over and not only just says hi and welcome to the church, but actually engages you in conversation, kind of gets, you know, you're just the two of you are talking, and he definitely shows interest in you. That means a lot, doesn't it? When someone takes the time to speak to an outsider. I remember now it's been about 30 years ago. I used to have a Bible study uh, with a volleyball ministry down in Moscow area. And I remember being at a special service at my brother-in-law's church in Blake area at, around that time. And, and at that service was uh, a mother and her son. And so I don't know how it came up, but the mother found out about the Bible study that I had and thought that would be a great idea for her son. Now, to be honest, I didn't expect him to come. I mean, I guess I'm judging it by myself. I just would have a hard time going to a group completely foreign to me where I don't know, as far as I know, anybody. But um, I thought, well, you know, God's given this opportunity, so I tried to be as friendly as I could and say, yeah, we'd love to have you. Gave him the times. Well, you know, that guy showed up. I didn't really expect that necessarily he would, but he did show up, became one of our most faithful attendees. And uh, he was already saved, but 
He had not followed the Lord in believer's baptism. So one night, oh, this had to be months later, he asked me what I thought on the subject, and I gave him several passages to study about that I believe that baptism is, should be after conversion. And, uh, you know, he had a real fear of water. However, after studying the passages for himself, he came back to say he was convinced that he needed to be baptized, and, and he did so. He followed through with God's grace helping him overcome his fear. All I did was sincerely welcome him when God brought him across my path, and the Lord did the rest. That's really what God's saying here in this passage, receive one another. So it can be, carry the nuance of, you know, having a private conversation. I, I don't think that's a primary meaning, but that's a, a good way to think of it. Maybe there are some strangers in your church family that you need to come up and just try to be friendly with and, and have a conversation with. Now, there's another way this word was used. It actually was used in the context of a riot in Acts chapter 17 and verse 5, where a bunch of people bonded together to riot against the Christians, trying to persecute them. Now, again, I don't think this is the primary meaning of the word here when it says receive another, bond together, but that certainly is an interesting picture, is it not? I'm thinking of another young adult man, this time in in our church at Calkins, who was started attending, oh, several years ago now, uh, as a young adult, and and uh, he was not saved at the time. He started coming, and after a few months of thinking and different people talking to him, I remember the night I got a call from our assistant pastor at the time saying that he had asked Christ to save him, and uh, what a blessing that was. Now, I remember also somewhere around that same time listening to an older pastor who said, you know, you need to get people involved, even if it's turning out the light. So Actually, that's exactly what I asked this new believer to do. I said, you know, we come to the end of the evening, and a lot of times I, you know, turning out the lights falls to me. I, would you mind taking that responsibility on? And he was very happy to do it and did it very faithfully whenever he was there. And he was there most of the time, unless his job uh, really kept him away from that. And, you know, all I did again, all I did was just try to include him in our ministry. I didn't do anything other than receive him. So the idea of receiving can mean to, to actually have a personal conversation. It can mean the idea of taking one along with yourself, including the person in the group. I think the main way that this word is to be read, and this seems to be what the scholars I was consulting felt as well, is the idea to receive with hospitality, to welcome to make sure this person knows he or she is accepted. And so in that day, as in today, there was a lot of racial prejudice. And if you think about it, the, the Jewish believers had been used to, for thousands of years, the, the way that God was working was largely through the nation of Israel, not through, you know, people at large. And so, you know, they looked at at the church is kind of a, a, a different entity. They really couldn't, it was hard for them maybe to put that together, that Jew and Gentile are supposed to worship together on the same footing. And sometimes the Gentiles had prejudice against the Jewish people too. And so what Paul is saying is, let me read it to you again, therefore receive one another, welcome each other, be glad the other person's there, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. You know, God has given us the different people, groups of the world, they have different uh, ways of thinking, different ways of coming at life, different, uh, and they, that's because they come from different cultures. Somehow we think that's bad. It's not. It really adds a joy and a, and a, a different flavor as Christians come together to worship God. 
and prejudiced, and it can happen in church, is not only necessarily racially based, the Bible also talks about it being economically based. So let me read you a passage out of James chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up at verse 1 and read down to verse 9. This is one of the first books of the New Testament, and James is laying his finger on prejudice that was going on for economic reasons. Listen to this. James chapter 2, starting with verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, Oh, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And of course, those evil thoughts are, man, this guy can help us. You know, the rich guy can maybe add some of his influence to make our church look better in the community, or maybe he'll give some money to help the ministry go on. All that God is saying, that's evil thoughts. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Now, by the way, God's not saying that he despises the rich and loves the poor. What he is saying is a lot of times the poor people are the ones that come to Christ. You know why? Because they're not so self-reliant on thinking, well, I'm going to make my own way. And, and sometimes the rich guy also, he's not putting his faith in his money and in his possessions, and there's a lot of times that we tend to be proud because we have means. And, of course, those things all hinder the gospel. He says, verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? And sometimes, of course, that happened as well. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And, unfortunately, that also happens that there are many times people of means who are uh, disrespectful toward the Lord and even blaspheme the Lord. If you, are, if you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So clearly, God is telling us that we ought to be welcoming people, not based upon their economic standing, but based upon the fact that they're human beings created in the image of God and God cares about them. That's why we ought to be welcoming people. And when people get saved and are part of the church, they ought to be welcomed there. Now, we also see now that not only are we to welcome everybody, but then Paul goes in and explains how Jesus came for both the Jew and the Gentile. And so in verse 8, he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jewish people, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Now, if this is very important. He What he's saying is, Jesus came, and he is going to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the founders of the nation of Israel, and even others along the way, promises that God is going to work in the nation and is God is going, to, is going to exalt them. These things are still going to happen. Christ did not mess up that. It, it, uh, you weren't ready for the kingdom yet because really the sin problem had to be dealt with first. That's why the cross had to help happen first. But those promises to the nation of Israel are going to be fulfilled. And so in the very early sermons, I'm going to read you from two of the first sermons after the coming of the Holy Spirit, when the church age really gets going. These two sermons, both to Jewish audiences, 
Peter is the speaker in both occasions, and he's telling them that the promises of the kingdom are still coming, that Christ hasn't forgot about those. So listen to Acts chapter 2. This is the very first sermon, verse 38 and 39. Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children. Now he's, again, he's speaking to Jewish people. He's at the Feast of Pentecost. And to all who are far off. So now he's including the nations of the world, as many as the Lord our God will call. So you'll notice Peter is saying, these promises are to you, speaking to his Jewish audiences. Now, you'll also notice the second sermon that we have recorded comes in Acts chapter 3. And I'm going to read a little more out of this sermon. I'm going to read from verse 17 down to verse 26. And so listen for Peter talking, again, to Jewish people by and large about how Christ is going to fulfill those promises about the kingdom. He says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, talking about the crucifixion of Christ, as also did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That suffering Savior is found in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. That's one of the spots. It's pictured in Genesis 22, in the sacrifice of Isaac, as the father sacrifices the son. It's also pictured in, the, in what, Jesus, what God says to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, how that the, the Savior would be hurt while crushing the serpent's head. It's also uh, talked about um, in Psalm 22. If you read that psalm and put yourself behind the eyes of Christ on the cross, you're going to see a whole lot of insight there. So he's saying, this is not an accident. Christ's crucifixion is not merely human. It's not human error. It's God's intent to save the world. Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. That's when he's talking about the, the coming kingdom, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That was quoting Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's quoting out of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And so what God said way back in the book of Genesis is that there was going to be a descendant of Abraham who would bless the world, calling them back to the Lord, that would be the Christ. To you first, God having raised up, notice to him, the, the Jewish people first, Jesus was a Jew, the gospel went out of Jerusalem first. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So Jesus came to fulfill the promises made to the Jewish forefathers, but he also came to bring the Gentiles other nations of the of across the planet to God as well. And 
this also was predicted in the Old Testament repeatedly. Matter of fact, what I'd like to do when I preach this in my church, Lord willing, in a few weeks, is I'm going to just make up a slide with all kinds of different references in the Old Testament to proclamation to the Gentiles, to conversion of the Gentiles. But Paul quotes from four passages, just boom, 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 real quick. The first one is Psalm 18 and verse 49 that he's quoting, and it says this, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now, here's the quote. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This was David's prayer. He said, I'm going to sing to your name and I'm going to do it in the presence of the nations, the Gentiles, the peoples of the world. The next quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43. And in verse 10, he says, and again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So here are Jew and Gentile worshiping together. They're rejoicing, O Gentiles, with his people. Jew and Gentile worshiping together. That's exactly what's supposed to happen in the church. He quotes next from Psalm 117 and verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. So we are seeing again the nations of the world rejoicing in the Lord, praising the Lord. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. I'm picking up at verse 12. It says, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. By the way, that's a quote out of verse 1 of chapter 11. And he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. So we see that the Old Testament, and this is just a smattering, it's just a couple, four, in fact, references to the work among the Gentiles that were prophesied in the Old Testament. I will just say, if you read your under, if your Old Testament with some discernment and look for it, you're going to find this is throughout so much of the Old Testament and that God was going to reach the peoples of the world, not just the nation of Israel alone. And thank God for that. Now, we also see, finally, that God's blessings then are going to rest upon those who by faith accept their fellow believers. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live in unity. We're supposed to welcome each other. So he has this blessing at the end. He says, now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God's blessings are going to rest upon those who accept their fellow believers. There's this joy he talks about. And joy is an, eter- an internal rightness where you just know that things are right between you and God. And even though circumstances can sometimes be bad, but you're walking with God and so you can have his joy. Peace is a rest in your soul. Hey, God is has, has it under control, whatever it is. My future, he has uh, my past, it's forgiven. Peace is is when you have a rest in your soul. And hope is when you have a confident expectation that all the things that God has said are going to be fulfilled. And he says, I want you to abound in hope. I want you to have this superabundant hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit will help you to trust God to the place where you have that confident expectation that what God has said is going to come to pass. Now, what do we conclude from this? Well, let me give you a few of them. First of all, the body of Christ is far bigger than any one of us, and so we need to be ministering to people around us concerned about their welfare more than ours and welcoming people into the the body of Christ and encouraging them, trying to edify them, trying to be a blessing to them. 
Number two, much disunity and division comes from selfishness and a lack of Christian love. And it's true, it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. Number three, Christians need to strive for unity, but with discernment. Now, what do I mean by that unity with discernment? It doesn't mean, when we talk about unity, that you just throw out the truth. A lot of people think that that's what unity means. Let me read you out of James chapter 3 and verse 17. It says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, what is interesting is the order. He said it's first pure, then peaceable. There are times when people are teaching false doctrine and they cannot be supported in the church. So we're not saying you just accept any person with any belief system. That That's not going to fly. We've had some people come to our church in recent months who were in a, a local church in the area, and the pastor wasn't sure that Christ hadn't gotten married, really wasn't believing that Christ was virgin-born. you got to abandon that kind of ministry, and we can't have fellowship with that kind of ministry. We also cannot have unity with Christian brethren who are just openly living in sin and don't care and are unrepentant about it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, there's a guy in that uh, church in Corinth. He's living with his stepmom. Now, can you imagine that? He took his father's uh, new wife. I don't know if there was a death or whatever, but it's his stepmom. He took her away from his dad. And the church people were acting like this. You know, this is all well, well and good. Well, we love everybody. Well, no, Paul said, you can't have a guy doing that. That's going to slander the name of Christ in the community. You have to deal with something like that. So it doesn't mean uh, when we talk about unity that we... We just unify with people that are openly living in sin and don't care. We also don't have unity with unbelievers. So again, if someone's denying the virgin birth, if they're denying that Jesus is the only way to heaven, uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, in that uh, locality or of Galatia, there were people that were teaching that you had to keep the law in order to be saved. And Paul was saying, uh, let them be accursed. It's, it's absolutely evil to change the gospel around on people. So we can't be, have unity with unbelievers, and we can't have unity with people who just want to live in sin. But we need to strive for unity as much as possible. Now, number four, a Christian who is totally sold out for Christ should not care about his personal advancement or goals more than he does about God and his glory. And I'll just tell you, that is what is so convicting, is I've been thinking, because of this message, on Christ cleansing the temple. I mean, it's not like he wanted to do it. He knew he was going to make enemies doing it. But he did it because he was concerned about the glory of God and the temple being a place of true worship, not of hypocrisy. And number five, there are two major reasons why you and I must welcome saved outsiders to God. What I mean outsiders, people that are new to the church, people that are seeking the Lord, don't have any friends there yet. Well, first of all, it's because Christ welcomed you and I into his family when we didn't deserve it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 t- says we were dead in trespasses and sins. And in chapter, uh, same chapter, verses 12 and 13, Paul's talking to the Gentile believers. He's saying you were on the outside for centuries. You, you had no hope. You were without God. You were living life, you know, your culture was living life completely devoid of a fear of God. And God brought you in. We ought to be grateful for Christ receiving us, and so we ought to receive the outsider. Secondly, God already promised to bring many from across the world into his family, so we shouldn't be shocked when someone comes in who's got a who's from a different race or a different background or whatever. We should be glad 
that God has brought them to us. You also, number six, can live in confidence that God will keep his promises. That's true for the nation of Israel. It's true for you and I as individuals. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Number seven, the result of believing in God and his promises is both joy and peace. Joy because you can look confidently at the fact that God loves you and has a purpose for your life. And peace because you know that the ultimate destiny for you when you know Christ as Savior is heaven. And then number eight, the Holy Spirit produces a superabundance of hope within us. That confident expectation is not in ourselves. It's a confidence in God and his word. And I'm just going to close by reading 1 John chapter 3. And I'm reading in verse 11 to 19 about this subject of Christian love. John wrote this. He said, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. You know, when I think about a person who shows the love of God, there's a pastor friend of mine, and we get together and pray quite frequently. And you know, the reality is that dear brother is concerned about me and about my church family just because he loves God. He's not concerned about who has the bigger church. There's no ego battles. We just enjoy fellowship praying for each other, praying for our different people sometimes in our congregations. Christian love is welcoming. It is loyal. That's what's supposed to happen. May God help us as Christians to live the life that Christ lived of sacrificial love, and it'll make all the difference in the world in our churches. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Life and night, he